I'm Brian Deer, and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, The Real ESP Experience. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 238. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hello! Hey son, hey son! Hello! Good evening! <laughs> Sorry, Annika, I um, totally mispronounced your surname. Not really. <laughs> I said Harrison. Harrison! Harrison. <laughs> it's either Hungarian, a Hungarian who couldn't learn how to pronounce an English R, or a Scottish person. Yeah. Well, I've I've heard worse, so... <laughs> yeah. Harrison. Or Harrison. <laughs> And since he, your husband is named Scotty, <laughs> he could be Scotty Harrison. <laughs> oh. He could, yeah. <laughs> All right. So before I get a lot of criticism <laughs> for my fake Scottish accent. Too late, Anders. Yeah, Too yeah. late. I think we should crack on with the show, which is all about an interview that we conducted with Brian Deere. And for those of you who don't know who Brian Deere is, listen to the interview because <laughs> it's well worth doing so. Mm. He's a hero. And it's really inspiring. It is indeed. Yeah, great. We have been talking for years about Andrew Wakefield and how he was brought down by a journalist. And Brian Deere is that journalist. So it's a really, really interesting uh, interview. Yeah. All right. So shall we? Yes. Let's just dive right into it. Every now and then, we interview someone whose works we think uh, to be of interest to our listeners and skeptics around Europe. Today, our guest is a multi-award-winning British investigative reporter, Brian Deere, who's best known for his investigations and reports on social and medicinal issues, and particularly those of the drug industry. He writes mostly for the Sunday Times, but he's also an international speaker, having appeared at multiple events, including skeptical conventions all around the world. A simple listing of his accolades would easily fill up the whole episode, but most of our listeners must have heard about some of his projects, including the BRICS contraceptive case, the taking down of drugs like Septrin and Vioxx, or the Pessor plagiarism case. But the investigation that has probably the greatest appeal to skeptics is the one into the wrongdoings of former British physician and infamous anti-vaccination advocate Andrew Wakefield. It is also the topic of his latest book, The Doctor Who Fooled the World, Science, Deception and the War on Vaccines, which is why we invited him to have a chat with us today. Brian, thank you for accepting our invitation and a very warm welcome to the show. Nice to talk to you. Welcome. So most of our listeners will be at least vaguely familiar with Andrew Wakefield and his scandalous actions, but it's probably not as well known to all of uh, our listeners, that it was you who brought him down, uh, resulting in him getting struck from the UK medi- medical register. Back in 1998, when his paper was published in The Lancet, you had already gone down the road of, of taking on some massive drug companies and their dubious medicinal products with some really impressive results. So how did a supposedly unimportant paper like that of Wakefield et al. get into your focus? Well, it was just a routine assignment. Uh, You describe it as an unimportant paper, but it had an enormous impact. And in many ways is the acorn from which the uh, anti-vaccine movement around the world that we see today has has evolved. Uh, I just was given a, a routine assignment to look at the vaccine issue because at the time, this was in the fall of 2003, all those years ago, when we were 
all much young, younger, better looking, and were getting more sex, well, at least I was, that uh, was at, at its peak of concern in the UK. Vaccine rates were for the MMR vaccine, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, were in, in free fall, effectively. They were absolutely at their lowest. And anything on that subject at the time would have got a good show in a newspaper. So I was just asked to take a look at it. I had no particular preconceptions about uh, what the ultimate outcome would be. And uh, there we are. Hmm. But for for those of, of our listeners who are not that familiar with the, with the actual story of what he had done before that, so could you summarise the story? Uh, what he had done and how you brought him down and w- why was it important to expose it, apart from the fact that you mentioned the numbers of vaccination rates going down? Okay. Um, after training as a, as a surgeon, in fact, and a period as a, a researcher in Toronto, Canada, Wakefield was uh, hired to a hospital in London, uh, not a particularly uh, prestigious hospital and an even less prestigious medical school, uh, the Royal Free Hospital and Medical School in Hampstead, which is in North London. And this was in 1988. And uh, 10 years later, to cut the long story short, after a lot of research on trying to show what the cause of Crohn's disease is, Uh, which is still unknown, the cause of Crohn's, a nasty ulcerating uh, inflammatory bowel disorder that can result in people having to have bits of their gut chopped out. Uh, Terrible disease in itself, not particularly common, but um, that was his field of interest. And then he went on into the question of autism and published a paper in February 1998 in The Lancet that essentially said that there was uh, at this hospital, the Royal Free in North London, a group of parents had turned up, uh, a series of parents had turned up with their children, uh, in the end 12 children, a case series of 12 children, where the parents effectively turned up and said, uh, my child was developing perfectly normally and within 14 days, specifically 14 days of uh, vaccination with the MMR shot, my child was showing the first symptoms of autism. Uh, The meaning of autism is changing over time. At the time, autism was essentially uh, not what some people would describe today. A lot of people go around saying, I have autism, and the kind of autism we were talking about then, you wouldn't be talking about anything, particularly if you you had it. Um, Very serious developmental uh, challenge on these children. And Wakefield claimed to have discovered a new syndrome in these children of of bowel disease and brain damage. And um, that's what was published across five pages of The Lancet, the world's number two general medical journal, I think it would be fair to say. And uh, it set off a massive public health crisis from a slow start. Relatively, it was covered by uh, television news because the hospital held a press conference to launch the launched the paper, set off the scare in big time in the UK, and it's now everywhere in the world, really, where people have um, have screens or mobile phones. Mm-hmm. Right. So how did it, what did you find when you looked into his research? Well, initially, the first thing, it, we, we kind of uh, re- exposed it in a, in a series of uh, developments over time, because the although the paper was only of 12 children, in fact, what lurked behind it was extremely murky. The first thing we discovered was that the paper was not, as Wakefield represented it to be, a work of independent scientific research. He presented himself as a uh, as an academic researcher who was motivated by moral conscience to bring forward uh, this information, alleging a link between the MMR vaccine and autism. Uh, when in fact we discovered firstly that he was being employed by a lawyer to make exactly the same case that the Lancet paper was making. Uh, This was entirely undisclosed. Uh, We discovered it. We discovered also that children enrolled in the research were children of parents who'd already become that lawyer's clients uh, who were then hoping to use the publicity around the paper to launch a giant class action lawsuit, which in fact later in that year, in October 1998, was launched in the UK. And eventually, by the time it failed in uh, late 2003, 
had cost on both sides of the action. About half of it was public money. About half of it was money from the pharmaceutical industry, its shareholders, pension funds, and what have you, scientific research was about today in American money, about $100 million went down the toilet on that particular class action that Wakefield was behind the scenes recruited to make a case against. And he'd signed up with this lawyer two years before the paper was published, February 1996. He'd uh, actually written agreement to work with the lawyer. Even his uh, closest professional colleagues had no idea he was contractually obliged in this way. Wow. Hmm. Wow. So he was really being very fraudulent and, and dishonest in his reporting then. Even at that stage, even with those simple pieces of information that he'd been retained by a lawyer to make this case, and also that children were uh, enrolled with as clients of the lawyer to be brought forward for class action, that was obviously to everyone in the world, I think, except Andrew Wakefield and possibly some of his more devoted admirers, a grotesque conflict of interest. Yeah. Uh, the editor of The Lancet, uh, when he found out about it, said we would, wouldn't, in his judgment, they would not have published the paper if they had known that that was his relationship because you simply cannot wear those two hats to be a researcher making a case for litigation and, on the other hand, uh, an apparently independent academic bringing forward objective scientific research. Because obviously we know that uh, whoever pays for biomedical research usually gets an outcome that uh, favours them. Uh, normally it's the pharmaceutical industry that pays for that, but in this case it was a law firm who was drawing on money from the rich taxpayer through something we have in Britain called the Legal Aid Fund, which funds poorer people to give them access to justice. And that's where the money came from, half of that money, about 50 million US dollars uh, in today's money. Wow. It's never a good sign when uh, a law firm controls a scientific outcome of, a st of, of studies and stuff. But it eventually got retracted, the paper. Yes. Um, but that was a result of uh, your actions. And uh, didn't you publish an article in The Lancet yourself about this case? No, I've never had a paper in the last year. I had a series in the British Medical Journal. Oh, the, oh sorry, sorry, that was... Uh, Some people regard that as the number five general medical journal, although I think it's... Yeah. I think, and they sometimes talk about the big five, but I think it's the British Medical Journal that talks about the big five because it's in fifth place. <laughs> <laughs> Lancet probably talks about the big two. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's up there anyway. Yeah, It's up there. They're all up there. Now, I did a series of BMJ. So so this the, the story unraveled in several stages. So the first stage was in February 2004. We made that revelation that Wakefield was working for lawyers and that children were clients of the lawyer. And therefore, there was this monstrous conflict of interest. And in fact, Wakefield had signed up with the uh, Legal Aid Board, the funders, he'd actually made a grant application in which he set out the research he was going to do for them with a list of co-authors was the same project that he published in The Lancet. Mm. He denies all this. He says there were two completely different studies and nothing to do with it. There was no conflict of interest. He denies absolutely all of it. But anyway, so that was the first step. And then later that year, I made a TV program, uh, a one-hour primetime documentary here. And Wayford sued us over that. So he sued uh, the Channel 4 network here over that. He sued the Sunday Times and he sued me personally. And as a result of that lawsuit, which ultimately he abandoned and paid our costs, and the costs were absolutely eye-watering, I discovered further information about the nature of that study, uh, which at the time I couldn't use because the information was sealed in the, in, in the procedures of the court. I'd seen information as a result of court action, and under British law, I was not allowed then to use it for some other purpose. But um, what resulted as a as a consequence of my first stories was that the British health minister called for an investigation of the whole Wakefield vaccine issue by the UK's General Medical Council, which is a is the medical board for all doctors in the UK. And in that, which began in July 2007 and ran for 217 days, which makes it longer than the trial of OJ Simpson, uh, they went through the medical records of these children. I'd already read these medical, a lot of these medical records at my lawyer's office in the litigation, which I couldn't use. 
But when they went through them again, over and over and over, day after day after day for 217 days, I was sitting in the corner of that room, the only journalist there. And I knew that because this was a statutory inquiry, it was sitting in public, I was entitled to make use of all that information. So essentially, the uh, medical records of these children uh, were read aloud over and over and over. So there's no question of me making mistakes. And then ultimately a transcript was issued uh, in which I was able to put into my notes everything those children had in their notes. So that was the second stage. And we did a uh, page one and double page inside of the Sunday Times. And then, then in 2011, after this uh, General Medical Council hearing had concluded and struck Wakefield off the uh, medical register, I did a, a three-part series for the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, going into all these things again in more detail for a, a medically qualified readership. So I went into the more precisely what was wrong and what wasn't wrong with these children, the referral details, their histories, mm -hmm. uh, and how Wakefield had altered diagnoses. Uh, he was a non-clinical academic gastroenterologist. He was a doctor without patients. He had no clinical activities, and yet this non-clinical academic adult gastroenterologist went into the diagnoses of developmental pediatricians, some of them very senior, very skilled, and changed them from what those pediatricians had diagnosed to what Wakefield wanted to report in The Lancet in order to create the appearance of a distinctive syndrome that was, uh, in his claim, caused by the MMR vaccine. Wow. And you just said that you read it all in the documents. And I was interested in um, knowing how you got hold of Wakefield's original like research documents. Uh, initially, uh, I was able to read key aspects of not all of them, but I read I read summary uh, documents which Wakefield's own team had created. So I read the the uh, data outputs from the study. Not all of the 12 children were there. So I read those at my lawyer's offices. It's all set out in the book, in fact, where how I did this. I read a set of records there. And I also read the children's medical records that were then held by Wakefield's own lawyers for the purpose of defending him at this General Medical Council hearing. So the General Medical Council used its powers to seize all these records. They supplied them to Wakefield, and then Wakefield's lawyers were ordered, we got a court order, to hand over those records to my lawyers so I could sit and read them. And I sat and read them, but I couldn't use them. But uh, to this day, I couldn't use them. Well, except for the fact that that children's records in a much more extended form were read into the public record at the General Medical Council's disciplinary hearing. Mm. But then Wakeford sued me again, and he sued the British Medical Journal in Texas. Mm. So I'm quite unusual in the sense I've been sued on essentially the same facts in both the UK and the United States. So I have that this fascinating position of being able to compare the libel laws of the two countries, which I find very interesting. And we could talk about another time if you ever had a show on that. But <laughs> um, but in these, it, because he'd sued us again in, in Texas, the documents that I'd obtained in the litigation that he'd brought in the UK were then moved over and unsealed because we had to submit them in evidence. Because although I wasn't able to use them journalistically in the UK, They were in my mind. Hmm. Obviously, what's in my mind has to go to whether what I published was reasonable. So we turned over these documents to Wakefield again. So we were giving back to him the documents that he'd given to us. <laughs> we were giving them back to him in Texas, but that meant that I could report them. Oh. And in fact, something very similar happens in the movie Spotlight. I don't know if you've seen Spotlight. I'm sure most people have it. You haven't seen it. You should watch it. I mean, download it on Pirate Bay. Spotlight, it's the, <laughs> the story of how an American newspaper cracked the paedophile ring uh, in, in the Catholic Church in the United States. And there you had the same situation where when documents are sealed, If for some reason court proceedings are taking place where you have to present them in evidence, then that unseals them. So those documents were unsealed. And you can see some of the content from those documents in uh, in my book because I'm now perfectly entitled to report them. Yeah, I, I noticed that you sometimes say we and sometimes you say I. 
So w- w- was this uh, you doing this, or was it a team effort? Uh, well, somehow it's my investigation. Don't, don't be modest now. No, well, no, it's my investigation, and had I not walked the face of the earth, it would never have happened. This, uh, <laughs> and, and I could go into how the the chain of events because it goes back a little further as to when I read Wakefield's paper, how I understood it, because I understood it within the context of having done work on a different vaccine. But uh, no, it was my investigation and I get the credit, I got the prizes, but the back of the book actually contains a great long list of all kinds of other people, lawyers, peer reviewers, fellow journalists, uh, uh, who all contributed in various ways to this investigation. Then there was, of course, the the, the corporate interest of Channel 4, which is a UK network, public service network with statutory duties for fairness and uh, honesty and accuracy. There was the Sunday Times and Times newspaper, and then the BMJ, published by the British Medical Association. And all of those had uh, a role to play in all this. So there's a we there. But there's also an eye there. So sometimes I may switch back and forth. But, um, All right. None of these documents or none of these events would have happened, but for an enormous amount of work by other people, especially the lawyers. What often comes up is his motivations. And obviously, from what you just said, it comes across as something that has been only motivated by money. Is there anything else, in your opinion, that motivates him, that keeps him moving in this direction? And has his motivational system, if there is some, changed over time, in your opinion? Well, to answer the last part of your question first, no, his uh, motivations never change. He doesn't change. And that makes him a problem dramatically to write about him because people who Mm -hmm. don't change are generally less interesting in terms of the arc of their story. His ultimate motivation, sure, there's an enormous amount of money involved and his motivations, his financial motivations. And and again, they're all set out, the companies he formed, and he was a serial former of companies. He'd he'd also, one of the other uh, revelations we made was that he'd filed his own patent on a single measles vaccine, something Oops. like nine months before he appeared at this press conference at the Royal Free Hospital in London calling for parents to be given the choice of single vaccines rather than the three-in-one MMR, which for reasons he never fully explained, said were likely to be safer than MMR. And he had taken out a, a patent. In fact, he'd taken out a patent even before that when he was doing work on Crohn's disease, which also claimed the discovery of a of a vaccine or a technology for a vaccine. So he had that other conflict of interest as well. I mean, there are layer upon layer of conflicts and uh, behaviours. But in order to, to understand why he did what he did, uh, it's, it's difficult for me because, I mean, he's, uh, if, we, if we just kind of, go to the other end of the telescope. He's kind of been driven to this. And sometimes he's got two lines of defense. One is he says that I work for the pharmaceutical industry. I'm supported by the pharmaceutical industry. He said on American television that I was supported by the Association of the British Pharmaceutical Industry, which I had nothing to do with for, I think the last time I ever dealt with them was, I think it was 1993. Uh, when I, they used to send me their compendium. This was before the internet used to have all the product data sheets online, and they used to send me this big book, a compendium of data sheets, which uh, was very useful. I had no relationship with the uh, that time other than years back, those contacts. And the other uh, explanation he gives for his situation is, well, in, in addition to the pharmaceutical industry, I'm in, it's Rupert Murdoch. And Rupert Murdoch was part of this thing with the pharmaceutical industry in this and government to destroy him. So there's that kind of narrative of conspiracy that I'm part oh, yeah. of, even though I've got a journalism award for investigating the drug industry. And if one of their executives thought that they could like offer me a suitcase full of money or th- something improper, they would assume as a matter of course that I was filming the encounter because it would be a better story than anything that they could give me. But, you know, so, but nevertheless, that's what Wakefield tells his people. The other line of attack he's got is that I'm a psychopath, that it's, this is just a, a random insanity on my part to fabricate 
and then get these fabrications passed, the editors and lawyers of Times newspapers, of uh, the Channel 4 network and of the BMJ and now the Johns Hopkins University Press, which is publishing the book in North America and which, which devoted massive effort to, at my request, to evaluating the documents, the original manuscript for the book, my archive on Wakefield is, is more than 12,000 PDFs and uh, Word files, many of them created manually by me from the original paper documents. And then about 2,500 of those are incorporated into footnotes for the manuscript of the book, which the publishers set two of its staff to go through and cross-compare and check the documents against the manuscript of the book. And we had a lawyer in New York looking at this, and he said he'd never seen anything like it, any, any such effort by any journalist or anything ever, never heard of anything like it, where a journalist would uh, marshal the evidence so that the publishers could check it and ensure the thing was true. And that if, he, if the journalist was deceiving them, I have to say that my contract with Johns Hopkins University is such that were I deceiving them, they could pulp my book and send me the bill because my contract makes yeah. it absolutely clear that to the best of my knowledge and belief, what I've told them, the story in this book is true. So Wakefield, nevertheless, to try and to his position is that I'm a psychopath working with Rupert Murdoch, the pharmaceutical industry, to cover up horrific injuries to children uh, because they're so frightened of him. <laughs> and uh, that's his position. But if you ask me what I say about his motivations, I would have to say you would have to look at the book and you would have to, you will see in this book a very great deal of mirroring behavior on his part, a very mm. great deal of it going back over many years that he says of others what he knows of himself. Uh, and um, and if he doesn't know of itself, that in a funny way makes it worse. But uh, giving some kind of glib explanation or diagnosis or something for the person that he is, uh, I don't think it's helpful to me, although I have to say I have three times been approached by medically qualified people, sometimes uh, giving me books to read, sometimes saying you need to speak to this person who said to me he, she would like to speak to you and what have you about the, the man that um, Andrew Wakefoot is. One of the things I think that is significant is that on the, the General Medical Council panel that heard his case, all 217 days of it, there was a consultant psychiatrist and the ultimate charges found proven and the sentencing statements included an expression which described Andrew Wakefoot as having a callous disregard for the suffering of children. And uh, he, on good PR advice, adopted that expression and turned it into the title of a book, which he used to mirror the case made against him. And um, yeah, callous disregard is, uh, is a label well applied to Andrew Wakefield. Okay. So as a teacher, I'm sometimes confronted with parents who are like anti-vax or at least skeptical of vaccinations. And why would you say Wakefield has been able to gather such a strong following in the first place? Well, well firstly, you have to begin with the issue that the medical establishment and particularly the people who run campaigns and who are seen as being pro-vaccine, um, which doesn't include me. I'm not part of all that. I'm, I'm a journalist. I've never taken any position about whether vaccines cause this, that or the other. I don't advise people whether to vaccinate or not vaccinate their children. Nothing to do with me. I'm not involved with these people. The debate so far has been dominated, as you might be aware, by vaccine developers themselves. That whenever journalists are looking for a source, a doctor to quote about vaccine safety, they end up quoting vaccine developers. I think that's a bit strange. But uh, there's another group of, of uh, doctors, mostly involved on the, on the edges of public health, who they've done a, a few, and I must get out the references because I've talked about this several times lately. They, they get out situations, they set up situations where you get a focus group together. And so you get a group of mothers usually, I think, in a room and you have the old two-way mirror and you ask 
the parents to look at show cards that you use in market research. You show them various cards with various messages on about vaccine safety and what, what they're looking for, what these researchers are looking for, are the messages they can use to promote confidence in vaccines. And usually the way it turns out is that no matter what cards you show parents, if you get people in a room and talk about vaccine safety, the people will leave the room more apprehensive about the safety of vaccines than they were when they came in. So you've got this kind of bizarre situation that vaccines themselves have a kind of a quality of anxiety. And you might say, well, OK, we all remember being stabbed when or if we don't consciously remember, we may have some inner imprint of being stabbed in the in the arm or the leg with uh, needles when we were very young. There's also the issue about unlike other pharmaceutical products, if there's a problem, you can't just stop taking it. Normally, if you take a drug and you get adverse effects, you can stop taking it. Maybe maybe take a take a different drug. But you can't do that with vaccines. Once it's in, it's in. And also looking at it from a journalist point of view, it's a great story. I mean, in fact, there are two great stories involved in, in, in the whole sort of vaccine safety, uh, vaccine scare narrative from a big media point of view. When, and I, I, yeah, I mean, I work for big media, have done for more decades than I really like admitting. But anyway, <laughs> the first story is a kind of mother and child vignette, the Madonna and child, if you like, an archetype of Western culture where you have fear and pity, which was what Aristotle said was, was the core of tragedy. You have Fear of the vaccine, fear of this, this idea that vaccines cause brain damage or autism or uh, narcolepsy, and maybe we're not too scared about narcolepsy, but certainly there's this fear of vaccines. Then you have the, the stories of people who are said to be vaccine damaged and vaccine injured, particularly children. And you have a tremendous sense of empathy for those or pity, if you like. And also you've got big pharma and pharma like big media. And um, I, I sometimes think that anything that everyone consumes, like politics, media, drugs, become the least popular thing in the public mind. And these are all things that people become very cynical about because they're so built into the way we live our lives. So people feel this tremendous empathy for the alleged victims or putative victims. And so you have from a journalist point of view, something which is of both human interest and public interest. So that is a very, very attractive package. And you add to that the fact that it's a relatively easy story to tell because you can't prove the negative. You can't prove that vaccines don't cause autism. You can't prove that um, there are not um, Japanese-speaking elephants roaming uh, Trafalgar Square in London. You can't prove they're not there. You get there, they've gone. Maybe they've gone somewhere else. You cannot prove the negative. So you've got a story that, from a journalist point of view, is easy to tell, doesn't cost a lot of money to in terms of journalistic resources. And even decades ago, when other vaccine scares came about, Media was keen to do stories that were economic, you got a big bang for your buck. So you've got that fantastic story. And then as a result of the media coverage, you get outbreaks of infectious disease because the public becomes scared. They stop vaccinating their children. The infectious disease comes back. And then you get another great story. You've got infectious disease outbreaks. Mm. So once again, you've got the victims of the infectious disease. You've got the uh, the campaigners. You've got the, the fear yourself that it might happen to you. So you've got another story. So you get two great stories for the price of one. And the price of the first one was very low for what you got. So it's a great story. So that's really, you need to understand those features before you then get to Wakefield's intervention, because he has a particular intervention since he was ejected from his job at the uh, hospital in London where he worked, which actually was before I ever wrote a single word about him. Hmm. But um, he was uh, fired from his job. 
And since that time, he was fired from his job. He has been on a mission that in my book, I have a section of it. I mean, the book is actually in four sections. It's structured in this way. The first section is big ideas, the kind of ideas that he had that brought him to this. Then the secret schemes, which we uh, revealed. Then how he was exposed. And the final section is called Avenged. And what you've seen since he left that job in London was his mission of avengement, revenge against those people who he believes have done him harm. And he's been really very successful in that. He would have been a, he would have been a success anyway if I'd not had anything to do with him. He, he moved to the United States before I published my first uh, story on him. And the idea was that he was going to set himself up as an expert on the American vaccine court circuit, which is very lucrative. The United States has a dedicated court that sits in Washington, D.C. to arbitrate on vaccine injuries. And it's a very lucrative activity. And he was going to get involved in that. And he was going to be the big guru of vaccine safety. And I came along and uh, uh, took him out in that respect. So he didn't have the medical qualifications to proceed with that. But um, that's his mission. His mission is one of revenge. And you get this kind of ironic thing that because he is such, and I, I put it as strongly as this, he is an incorrigible liar, and uh, if he wishes to sue me again, all that will be uh, <laughs> will be brought forward. But he's an incorrigible liar, not just all those years ago, yeah. but in what he's been saying ever since. Uh, and if he wants to see that testing, then you know, if he sues, he'll lose. But um, his mission has been, in a way, strengthened in the way that a judo practitioners are able to use the power of, if you like, the assault on him to his advantage in the sense that because he's prepared to say that that there's a conspiracy, that I'm working for the drug industry, that it's this is Rupert Murdoch and that it's all lies and so on and so forth. He spent 20 years out there at conferences of parents and meeting people personally, greeting and meeting and charming. And even people say that he's a charismatic figure, he's been doing that work for 20 years. And those people believe him and have become ensnared and, in, and captured by his uh, persona and his story, very much, much like the, the, the famous Stockholm syndrome of people who, are, who find themselves <laughs> involved in, uh, right. in uh, hostage situations who sometimes end up in relationships with the hostage takers, that his fan base, his admirers, are also to a substantial extent his prey. Yeah. He preys on the people who are his own supporters. And how he does that is really, I think, the uh, conclusion of my book as to how that how that happens. Yeah. But do you think there is a risk or something that we could say that because you and others met, met him with such hard criticism, you've actually fueled his, you've given him a voice uh, and somehow helped him to, to bring out his message. Is, is, is there any risk that that has been the case? Well, there's an interview in the Sunday Times magazine this week, basically, where the, the interviewer kind of raises that issue, and she raised that with me. And I said to her, not a lot of that is in, is in the piece because it's quite a long point. He would have achieved what he's doing anyway. Nothing to do with me. I'm a journalist. My job is to bring forward stories. And I, my criteria, I, I was trained in the Sunday Times newsroom. And since that time, in the, uh, I've, I've always worked on the principle that uh, for a story that is interesting, you ask three questions. Is it new? Is it true? Do we have it to ourselves? That's the role of a journalist. It's not, it's not the role of a journalist to sort of try and work out, well, if I publish this story, then, well, maybe that'll happen. You, you never know how shit turns out, to put it, put it bluntly. <laughs> you just don't know where these things lead. But what I, I do know is that Wakefield would have had a, a huge profile, whatever he'd done, and the shortfalls have been elsewhere. I'm not trying to like pass the buck to somebody else, but what brought Wakefield back, as I set out in the story, is what happened at the CDC, it wasn't anything to do with with me. He was finished. He had bloodshot eyes and hobo haircuts. He was he was finished until somebody at the C, a researcher at the CDC made a series of stupid, ill-considered telephone uh, admissions, if you like, or involved himself in in making silly comments about his peers and about the work. He'd been doing at CDC to somebody who was 
uh, an aficionado of Wakefield's, and they then set up a situation where they recorded this guy and they then misreported and distorted what it was he was saying. And Wakefield then produced a 90-minute video called Vaxxed, which was enormously successful and profitable, in which this uh, CDC scientist's position was distorted and the true position that the scientist had notified Wakefield of was suppressed. That film is once again another example of Wakefield's absolutely incorrigible dishonesty. Um, the But it was the CDC and their scientist who fell into that trap. It wasn't me. It wasn't me who created that opportunity, and that opportunity would have been there whatever I'd done it. Nothing to do with me. But nevertheless, I, I do recognise that Wakefield, is, his strategy has been to deny absolutely everything. The only thing he admits is that uh, on a videotape, where he is seen talking about buying blood from children at a birthday party and joking about them crying and fainting with uh, distress over these uh, vaccinations, that the person in the video is himself. That's the only thing he admits. Everything else in my investigation, everything else that I've published, he says, is a pack of lies. Hmm. Whereas, on the other hand, he's been the one since then who has basically built up a, a complete environment of lies and uh, disinformation campaigns and all that, that we tend to see these days, especially with the COVID-19 situation being upon us and several different vaccines being in the development stage, that uh, he has paved the way for others to deny the efficiency of fighting the pandemic of any kind of disease with the vaccine. So he started out and he often says that he's not anti-vaccination per se, but he's anti that kind of vaccine that was used specifically with the MMR and, and that well, kind no, of stuff. Just to, just to correct you, he has subsequently said that he would not vaccinate, if he had a child now, he would not vaccinate a child. At all? At all. Okay, he moved on. Okay, all right. Then he has changed, actually. <laughs> oh, no, the motivation is the but same. No, the motivation is the same, but what, what he says, the lies that he's saying have definitely changed. So do you see that the anti-vax movement has gained such a ground that it might affect our fight against the COVID pandemic? Well, of course. But you see, this is part of the problem, is it? Because it's almost as though you are shutting the point down at that point. Because, you see, to me... The public anxiety over vaccines, and particularly what was accomplished with Vaxxed, which I, I regard as being a history-making product in its effect, and I would say that not since the March of Dimes way back in uh, Roosevelt's time has, has any initiative had such an impact. Now, why it had such an impact is involvement of celebrities and um, various other things that happened at the time and the willingness of the participants to flagrantly lie in a way that, well, I think has become part of the American culture now. And we do have to like, hope that maybe that culture is going to move back in a more constructive direction in the next few months. But that train has left the station and things now need to change and I actually put forward a, a, a program which I think medical journals in particular and the medical establishment, the uh, academic institutions and things need to take account of, where the public is entitled to better reassurance about the nature of uh, vaccine development and that the claims that are being made about vaccines are properly sourced, properly evidenced and are honest. And I think there are real question marks over the integrity of the scientific process, the ability of some individuals to, to cheat. And with 200 candidate vaccines, either in clinical uh, evaluation or preclinical evaluation, you can bet quite a lot of those are not exactly on the up and up. And I, I say that having, and one of the things you didn't mention at the start that I investigated, I investigated AIDSVAX, the, the world's first AIDS vaccine, which failed in clinical trials in 2003. And everybody knew that it was going to fail in clinical trials, but they still got a huge amount of money for it. And uh, they also had a dirty deal with somebody at the CDC 
who had a uh, an arrangement to join the company uh, subsequent to him awarding the company quite substantial grants from CDC to develop this uh, hopeless product. So you've got real questions about the integrity of the process that are in the public's mind. And I think they have to be addressed and dealt with properly. You can't just put fingers in their ears or or say, oh, well, what about measles outbreaks or produce vaccine developers to, to reassure the public? There's a lot more that needs to be done. And I don't think that the medical establishment and the vaccine developers are really willing to do that. Uh, maybe it's they've become locked into this um, competition with w- what you're calling the anti-vaxxers. But the anti, the whole strand of opinion that is anxious about vaccines, sceptical about vaccines, hostile to vaccines, all different shades in between, is not a homogenous group. It's a very diverse group. And, yeah. and the people who are responsible for public health and uh, vaccine development and and, uh, drug safety, they're not really even beginning to understand who these people are. And until you understand who these people are and where they're coming from and what they need to address their issues, there's not going to be a lot of progress in dealing with them. But as I say, I'm I'm not part of that whole medical pro-vaccine vaccine developer, you know, nexus. I'm just nothing to do with that. Wait long tried to portray me as part of that and the anti-vaxxers try to uh, suggest that I'm sort of part of all that but I'm just not I mean I'm a journalist and I just did the story I setting out the real people and the specific facts of how we got to be where we are now with this whole anti-vaccine movement uh, thing and that's the story in the book as it stands today it's a good that you mentioned your previous investigations especially into some pharmaceutical companies and their wrongdoings and their uh, dirty deals as you refer to them because first of all that proves your point of not being affiliated with them because why would you then do all those investigations and find out all that dirty stuff about them but the other thing is to what extent do you see uh, the current situation attributable to those wrongdoings by those pharmaceutical companies and to what extent to the anti-vaccination movement headed by Andrew Wakefield himself. So it's easy to build up the distrust in the public eye towards science with all those dirty things going on in the background anyway. So to what extent do you think they are attributable to these two sides? Oh, sure. The, the, the drug industry is is in many respects a soft target because of the things they get involved in. I'm not sure they get involved in anything particularly worse than other big corporations get involved in. I mean, if you look at the Volkswagen yeah. where they... Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was pretty big. Yeah, exactly. They were uh, cheating the public on an absolutely extraordinary scale. But you see, in, in that, where does the responsibility lie? Does it lie in the company Or does it lie in the individual academic and and, uh, laboratory researchers? Because you can't assume that the drug industry are like homogenous. In fact, the drug industry actually employ people to try and catch fraudsters because they want to know if if somebody is, is publishing fraudulent data, they want to know because they and their products and their share price and what have you pays the price for it. So they're quite keen on doing it, but the pharmaceutical industry has a, has a very bad reputation. I mean, another, another one I'll give you an example of. It's not pharmaceutical, but it's the same point you're making. James Murdoch, right? He's the son of Rupert Murdoch, never had editorial responsibility for the Sunday Times or the Times. Uh, he was chief executive of Sky Television, which had a had a news division, but I'm not quite sure whether he would have had any influence on that. Now, James Murdoch, five years after I published my first stories on Wakefield, James Murdoch joined the board of GSK, uh, the one of the world's top vaccine manufacturers and drug companies, GlaxoSmithKline. Now, why the hell would somebody who was involved in publishing go on the board of a drug company. I think he was invited to join the board of a drug company, probably because they wanted to be able to talk to him about how they could reach the 
opportunity that they've got in the United States, which is direct to consumer advertising in the UK. Because in the UK, the drug industry isn't allowed to advertise directly to the consumer. They've got various ways of getting around that into uh, the, the margin, but you don't have that relentless uh, diet of drug industry of product ads that you get on American television. It's just not legal. So I suspect that's why he did it. But I and my investigation now get get abused by these anti-vaxxers and by Wakefield and these people as being somehow a conspiracy with the Murdochs based on the fact that James Murdoch did this five years after I did my story. And of course, when you're using social media and you're telling these tales to quite often relatively unsophisticated people, they go, oh, yeah, well, that, that makes sense. Yes, they were, okay, so it was it was the Murdochs, James Murdoch, blah, blah, blah. So you get these own goals. I don't think Murdoch needed the money. Uh, so <laughs> Probably not. Couldn't he have just seen that for somebody who was involved in, in newspapers and television to go and sit on the board of a drug company had the potential to raise questions about work that was being done in those newspapers and television stations. I mean, it's just absurd. So, and the same with the drug industry. So I'm I'm not uh, a defender of the drug industry and I'm not a, a defender of James Murdoch or the Murdoch's general or any of this. So yes, it's a, it's a perfect storm. You've got a situation where all kinds of people have added to the mix. Mm. And that's why I say my book is not a book that tells you whether vaccines cause autism. It's not one of those books that holds forth about the safety of vaccines or otherwise. There's one book that came out, a guy years ago published a book off the back of my investigations i i would have stuff in the sunday times and he, he immediately got my stuff packaged it up and sent it to his agent and sold it as a book and um the kind of story going on there was was just so it was like his premise for his book was that he'd read everything there was to read about vaccines realized that they were safe and then set about writing his book. It's kind of absurd. The, the idea that the, it's what Tom Wolfe, the, the famous American writer, called the literary gentleman with a seat in the grandstand. It's somebody who's kind of like holds forth and tells you about um, what to think about vaccine safety, what to think about the anti-vaccine movement, what to think about Andrew Wakefield, what to think about this, what to think about My book doesn't do that at all. It just tells the story as a narrative about the real people and the specific facts. Because in this vaccine thing, there's no overwhelming zeitgeist. There's no overarching explanation. There's nothing that anthropologists can tell you that this is somehow related to what, you know, the election of Donald Trump or whatever, whatever, whatever. None of these things. It's just a set of real people and specific facts. They did these things and this is where it came from. And I think people, when people understand that, they begin to get some sense of how you might tackle it because you realise all the nuance and the, the the nature of the players in it. And that's how um, I've tried to write this book. And so, you know, I, I don't need to get involved with the, the supporting or opposing the pharmaceutical industry or telling people whether to vaccinate their children or having any views about whether vaccines do or don't cause autism. I just say what happens. Yeah, and we heard a lot about Wakefield now and also about the um, consequences of the anti-vax movement. And in your opinion, how can we best combat the misinformation that Wakefield spreads? And also, is there any way to reach the Wakefield supporters? Well, I mean, it's not really my job to tell people how to <laughs> campaign. I'm not a campaigner. I'm a journalist. My work is an investigation. It's not a campaign. What I would say, however, is that there are some manifest deficiencies on all sides. And one of those deficiencies, as I said before, is, is to do with the, the integrity of biomedical research. I mean, what brought me into this thing wasn't a, an interest in vaccines. Uh, I was What interested me in the Wakefield paper was how he was able to publish the data he did. I just looked in and I thought, yeah, right, but how could you ever get behind the face of that particular piece of research because these were anonymized patients. It was an anonymized case series as biomedical research is all anonymized. These were developmentally challenged patients. It was children. How would you ever find out what the truth was about that case series? Well, I did in the end, but it took years and years just for those 12 children. Hmm. Um, but I don't campaign. I just point out that there's much 
that uh, the medical journal editors in particular know all about that uh, needs to be addressed to ensure that we can accept that, that these journals are telling the truth and that the data that they publish has been evaluated for truth and not just for the superficial plausibility of peer review. So there are things to be done, but I don't I don't give hmm. advice on campaigning. No, but even if you don't, I'm sure you have been on the receiving end of a lot of harassment over the years. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I get I get every time Wakefield says anything about me, I get this inpouring of abuse. And certainly on the internet, uh, the, there's a huge amount of abuse on me. And they, there was even a, a film, a, an amateur film that was made to make me look like a fool or a liar, which was around for a long time. And I do, I, I, I explain all of, well, some of that in the book. Uh, it's not a book about me, but um, I do expect yeah. some of that. But yeah, I mean, I get a lot of abuse. These people are inflamed. People, I've had people write to me and saying I'm worse than Hitler and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. I can rot in hell and what I've done to children and blah, 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 blah. Mm. But a lot of these people are people who are hurting and who've been manipulated. Mm. And so uh, while I do sometimes get quite irritable with them and I've had moments of, if you like, compassion loss, <laughs> or but, but I have to recognise that these people have been fooled. These people have been misled. And so the things that they say and the ways that they behave towards me are based on this man's 20 years of working his way around North America, telling the stories that he does. That's not really their fault, but um, that's just the way things are. It is becoming more and more obvious to me that uh, what you're doing is absolutely amazing and what you've been doing for a long, long time now. But as an investigative journalist, you are becoming an increasingly rare breed. And especially with today's world of fake news and disinformation campaigns and fact checkers struggling to make it work and putting quality information out there. How do you see the future of investigative journalism? Is there a future for it? Well, yeah, I mean, there is, but it's got, I mean, I, my first story on Wakefield took four months to bring to light, to bring to the, to the page. And today you would just, even for that story, the only reason we could do that even then was because the subject matter was of such huge public interest. So it was about MMR. If it had been yeah. about heart disease or dementia or fraud in uh, cardiovascular research or something, you, you wouldn't have got four months time to, 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 to research it. So that was even then today, you'd be lucky to get half a day on, uh, on this subject uh, because the money is just not there. The, the rise of social media, the internet, and the web have first they came for newspapers classified advertising they took all of that and now they've taken a very substantial amount of what used to be called display advertising because of the ability of uh, the algorithms to target the individual consumer so that if you want to sell a car to somebody you only have to spend money to put your messages in front of people who can afford to buy the car you know, there's no point in trying to sell a Mercedes to me because I've never owned a car in my life. <laughs> I can drive, but I've never owned one and I couldn't buy a Mercedes. So advertising doesn't need to spend money buying display advertising in broadsheet newspapers where they're paying to try to sell to me and all the rest of us who couldn't afford to buy a Mercedes. So the, the money has drained away. And in part, that's the big media's own fault for not realizing that they needed to get the information base themselves, the big data themselves. And they were a much better place to get that data than they thought they were. Um, but um, no, the position is, is quite bleak. There are some advantages. It's when I started at the Sunday Times, if I wanted a, a government report on, I don't know, housing, we would send a car from the newspaper round to the government press office. It would be waiting in a brown envelope in the lobby and the driver would bring the document back and give it to me. Now I can go, go to my keyboard, tap, tap, and it appears on my screen. So there have been those advantages. But in terms of being able to do what I did, which was to spend months and months and months spread over, I don't know, whatever it is now, 15 years or something like that by now, maybe more, I don't know, interviewing people, gathering documents, getting the education, the medical, the hard medical education so that I can understand what Wakefield was doing and see exactly what he did uh, in terms of the medical consensus of, of that period, going to the British Library and, and reading medical textbooks, 
from that period, because obviously if you're evaluating the medicine of that period, you have to read the books of that period and all of that. Nobody could. I can't think of any equivalent. My, my, to the best of my knowledge, and if somebody knows better, I'd love to hear hear this. My investigation is the most extensive investigation by journalism ever into an aspect of medicine. And uh, it's a massive task yeah. and couldn't have been done if there wasn't these three different media groups, plus now my uh, publishers and the, the various rights issues because we've sold it in Poland and we've sold it in France and we've got an audio book and blah, 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 blah. So to able to, to monetize the project in such a way that uh, we can tell this story. As I say, almost no other subject could you could you raise the resources to to do that kind of uh, project. Mm. Yeah, here, here. So, so we have the results now in your book, The Doctor Who Fooled the World, Science, Deception and the War on Vaccines. So where can we get hold of this book and when? So when will it be published? Well, it's published in the UK. Well, it, well, it becomes unlocked by Amazon tomorrow on the 1st. Mm -hmm. And then the other one, which I don't have in my hand, the North American one, is uh, is launched on the 29th. Why the 29th? I've no idea why they leave it so late, but on the 29th of September, and you can get it from Amazon. There's a there's a I don't th I just think the audio book is is up yet, but there's a Kindle and a paperback, and the American one hardback. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, or oh, it'll it should be in the bookstores, but not I don't think across Europe unless they're very unusual bookstores and having English language ones. Unless you're in Poland, Poland is. The Polish edition is, I mean, I've seen the cover of it. I don't know quite when it's being released, but very soon. Are there any other translations uh, planned, do you know? There's a French one in progress, and uh, we're talking to people in other places. Mm -hmm. Where I really want to sell it is Brazil, because there's a lot, there's a bit of Brazilian content in it already. Ah. And what I hope to do is, a, is another edition within which we okay. bring it up to date with the COVID thing um, and other aspects that I've come across. And that would be the final version. So, but yeah, it's in, it's in the bookshops now and, um, and uh, they should uh, put them on the shelves tomorrow in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, and um and otherwise, you can get them on Amazon and uh, Kindle. Great. And I think uh, we are really, all of us, look, looking forward to reading it and uh, getting our hands on yes. copies. And knowing just a tiny portion of what you've done so far in the, in the matter and discussing it here with you, I think it's safe to say that uh, it should be on everyone's uh, shelf all around the world, not only in Europe. And you've been very generous with your time. I would like to thank you for that and the opportunity for this interview. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And hope the book is a great success and everyone reads it and uh, it will live to be reprinted a million times. <laughs> and thank you very much for all your, all your work and for your time as well. Brian, dear, thank you and goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Wow, that was a blast. <laughs> yeah, very good. I know he said that he's not an activist and he, he doesn't approach him things that way, but it makes him all the more of a hero. Mm. Yes. In my opinion. I mean, we need activists. We need people who are equipped with that mindset, but we need to build on the works of the likes of Brian Deere. Yeah. And uh that kind of thorough investigative journalism and investigations amazing and, and and even if it's true that he is not a vaccine expert he's not into the medical that's not his expertise but we always need people who dig out the truth behind these things uh, that can in this case as in this case be extremely harmful i mean andrew wakefield has a death count on his person that you can't even calculate but lots of people have died because of him yeah and even more people have been misled and are doing stupid and crazy things because they believe in him and we need people like brian deer to bring that kind of nonsense down and since you mentioned that it's not his background, this kind of uh, medical stuff, because his background is in philosophy mm. and he, he holds a, a philosophy degree. But I think that equipped him with the proper way of thinking. And then he put all the hard work into investigating all those topics and all those cases. And that is what counts. So it shows very well that occasionally, even when... And a journalist 
who has a degree, holds a degree in philosophy, goes against a medical doctor, it can be the case that the medical doctor is wrong mm. in this kind of argument yes. and confrontation if he hasn't done his homework or he's in the wrong yeah. for some other reason. Yeah, but it's like with Brian Deer, it's that fact and logic and reason are on his side. So absolutely, that's just what it is. That's right. So that was really uplifting. I really loved every moment of that interview. And I really hope that our listeners enjoyed it as well. And go buy his book. Yeah, I will definitely do that. And uh, we have the advantage of knowing that it comes out tomorrow, which will be two days ago. Uh, when you listen to this, yes. <laughs> when they listen to this, <laughs> if you listen to this show on the, the day of the release. Right. Time traveling with the ESP. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh, we can even do that. <laughs> but that means that it's the end of the show. And I'd like to thank both of you, Annika and Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And sharing that amazing experience of interviewing Brian Deere with me. And I'd like to thank our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, when we come back with a regular show, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Wislap. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe This is episode 239. No. This is episode 238. I'm your host, András Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelena... <laughs> <laughs> nope, she is not online. Automatic. Sorry, sorry, Annika, it's just years of... Um... It'll take five years. It's five years, yeah. it's okay. <laughs> If you still do that in five years. No, I won't. <laughs>